Well, when he wasn't flying in his $24 million plane across the Atlantic to one of his vacation homes in Europe, maybe you'd find him watching the sunset from his $7 million super yacht. But if he wasn't there, he was probably living a life of luxury in his 10,000 square foot penthouse on Lexington Avenue in New York City. He had a home in France, had another in Palm Beach. Luxury cars and boats, everyone wanted to know him. People stood in line to shake his hand, to stand in his Manhattan office, was really to stand in the epicenter of financial and investment success, or so it seemed. But then came the morning of December 10, 2008. That's when the charade ended. That's when this generation's most infamous scam artist was found out. Bernie Madoff knew he had been caught. He would then sit down with his wife and his sons and confess. It was all a lie, he told them. He had been running a 20-year Ponzi scheme. Over the next weeks and months, the staggering details would all become public knowledge. Madoff had masterminded one of the largest financial shell games and the largest financial crime in U.S. history. He swindled both rich and poor alike out of billions of dollars, and his collapse was really one of biblical proportions, and in one fell swoop, he lost it all. Everything came uh, crashing down, no money, no future, no family. One of his sons committed suicide, The other changed his last name. His wife went into seclusion, and the 74-year-old Bernie Madoff was sentenced to spend the rest of his life as prisoner number 61727054 in the Federal Correctional Complex of Butner, North Carolina. Why did he do it? Why live a lie for decades? In one word, status. See, according to a biographer, he was ridiculed as a child for his inferior intellect. He was rejected by one girl after another, but he excelled at making money, and he was able to achieve what he always wanted. He finally got the status that he was after. He climbed his way to the top of the mountain, only to find out the view from up there was very hard to manage. If only he had known the promise from 1 Peter 5.5, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Bernie Madoff died one year ago next month at the age of 82 in that federal prison. But even knowing how his story ended, Inside of us, there's still a thought, isn't there, that said, man, I just wish I could have some of what he had. Man, if I could only have just just some of that, then my life would have meaning, then I would have success, then I would have the things that I really wanted. Maybe your your conscience pricks you not to cross any lines that would be uh, illegal, but still we think the, the mansion, the vacation homes, The yacht, the plane, the money, the fame, the the status. 
See, as culture and kingdoms collide all around us, we would all be wise to realize that same collision is going on inside of us, is it not? See, the reality is we live in a culture with values that are in deep conflict with the gospel. We've seen that. Really, this challenge through the study of the book of Daniel is how do we navigate living as a Christ follower in a Babylonian culture? How do we live counterculturally in this world where everything revolves around you? Protect yourself, promote yourself, comfort yourself, take care of yourself. Yet we have Jesus saying to us as his followers, crucify yourself. Live for my glory, no matter the cost in the culture around you. And don't miss the point this morning. Jesus isn't calling you really away from treasure. He's calling you to the greatest treasure. He's calling you to himself. So, so really, Jesus' calling on our lives as followers aren't so much a call to sacrifice as it's really a call to satisfaction. Satisfaction in him. And, and the reality is that's what all of us deep down are looking for, is it not? That's why we chase after the things we chase after. We're looking for satisfaction. We want success. We want status. And culture will always say to you, here it is, right here. Just chase after it. Go for it. You can have it all. But what will it cost you? And what if gaining the treasure of this culture means losing the greatest treasure that's available. See, so here we are in chapter four in our study and we see that God's given Nebuchadnezzar this crazy dream. And he was so frightened by this dream that he couldn't sleep. And true to form, he calls in his magicians and his uh, dream interpreters and he says, what does this dream mean? Now, either these guys couldn't interpret it, which we saw that happen in chapter 2, or they wouldn't interpret it, which I think is likely the case, because who wants to be the bearer of bad news to the king? So Nebuchadnezzar goes out and asks Daniel, who in our story last week in chapter 3 was still a teenager, now by chapter 4, about 30 years has passed, which would put him in his 40s. That means he's been faithful to walk alongside the king, to serve the king, to interpret dreams for the king. And so that relationship has been solid for decades. And the king says, hey, here's my dream. And he tells him, I, I, I dreamt about this giant tree and it reached all the way up toward the heavens and, and the branches seemed to cover the earth and give so much shade. It was a blessing to all these people and, uh, and animals lived there and the tree provided for many people. But then suddenly there was this voice, this holy one from heaven who, who shouted, cut down the tree and only leave a stump so that everyone would know God is the most high. And he rules over the nations. And so Nebuchadnezzar tells this dream to Daniel. And Daniel gets really quiet. He's got to think about, how do I share this interpretation with the king? Well, if you're willing and able, let me invite you to stand in honor of God's word this morning. We'll pick up uh, in the story of Daniel chapter 4, starting in verse 24. 
And so Daniel says, this is the interpretation, O king. It's a decree of the Most High which has come upon my Lord the King that you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. As it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed uh, for you from the time that you know heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. That There may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Verse 28, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar at the end of 12 months. He was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers, and his nails were like birds' claws. Father, this is your word, and in it you have a word for us, your people, this morning. And so my prayer is, God, that you would give us ears to hear the warning that you have given to Nebuchadnezzar. Father, as always, we pray that as your word goes out, it would land on good soil in our hearts and it would take good root and produce much fruit in our lives. Because, Father, we come to your word this morning seeking so much more than just mere information. We come seeking transformation, that we would be made and formed and fashioned in the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So last week in chapter three, we see this really cool story about some Hebrew teenagers who take their stand. They will not bow down and God miraculously rescues them from the fiery furnace. And and remember, the point was, it's very difficult to stand when everyone else around you is bowing down. But God gives the power to stand to those whose hearts belong to Christ. But if we just stopped there here in Daniel, we would miss the whole point. Because right alongside of this theme of God's protection and God's provision for these teenage boys, there's this sobering reality for a pagan king that there's a God that's more powerful than he thinks he is. There's a God that's more powerful than Nebuchadnezzar. And so we get to chapter four and we see this pagan king take the journey from this pathway of pride, of self, and it results in the praise of God, but he has to go through the valley of humiliation. And I would tell you this morning, that's a pathway that every one of us must walk if we want to see Jesus. 
if we want to experience life and life forever. So some truths from our text this morning. The first is this, culture always fuels your cravings, but the gospel produces contentment. It doesn't take much for us to look around to see a culture that's consumed with success, that's consumed with status. Think about the vast amount of marketing dollars that are spent aimed at helping you see your dissatisfaction with your current life and then showing you how much better you could have it. To show you, look, your life would only be this much better if you had this or did this or experienced this. Or even we grab a device and a simple scrolling through social media, right? All of a sudden highlights how much better all your friends have it than you do. Look at what they did. Look at where they went. Look at what they got to experience. And then all of a sudden jealousy and bitterness starts to grow in our hearts. Why? Because my life is so mundane. Look at what they've got. Look at what I don't. See, culture fuels these cravings for for more or better or higher in all areas of our lives. And make no mistake, the, the Babylonian culture that we find ourselves in, much like Daniel's time, has a very clear agenda. There is a cultural worldview There are cultural values and norms and expectations. We even have a phrase for it here in the United States, right? The American dream. This is where David Platt is so helpful when he reminds us that that the gospel and the American dream have fundamentally different starting points. The American dream begins with self, exalts self, says that you're inherently good and you have it in you to what it takes to be successful. So do all that you can, work with everything you have to make much of yourself. But in contrast, the gospel begins with God. The reality that we were created to exalt his name to the ends of the earth. And while the goal of the American dream is to make much of us, the goal of the gospel is to make much of God. So the question is this morning, what dream are you chasing after? Do you have regular checkpoints in your life to see if you're being squeezed into culture's mold? I love the message paraphrase of Romans 12 too. Don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Is that not a sobering reminder for us? Don't become so well-adjusted to culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out, readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. It makes me wonder, how in the world did Daniel not adopt Nebuchadnezzar's values? I mean, we saw at the beginning in chapter 1, he immediately started to try to press him into the Babylonian mold, re-education, renaming, re-indoctrination, right? How could it be that Daniel now has served with him some 40 years and, and seen all that he has and not become awestruck? I mean, look at this guy. Look at all that he has. 
And it's here we really see Nebuchadnezzar at his pinnacle because here in chapter four is really the last glimpse that we're going to get into his life. And where we see him here in chapter four, he's on the top of his highest palace and he's looking down over everything that he has created. The kingdom that he has built, everything that sits under his powerful reign, to give you perspective, he rules over what we would now call Turkey, Syria, Israel, Jordan, Egypt, all the way to the border of Iran. He owned all of that. He ruled over all of it. So he's a man without fear. He has absolute power. He's ruling and reigning. And his life is at the peak of what uh, any of us could even envision when it comes to luxury and power and security. His palace complex is so impressive that even his gardens become one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. He has it all. He's truly the master of his own domain. Everything he wanted, he got. Well, pick your person today. Steve Jobs, Elon Musk, Oprah Winfrey, England's royal family, Tom Brady, Jeff Bezos, right? It doesn't matter who you pick. Nebuchadnezzar likely had them all beat in terms of what he had. And even though he was incredibly evil, and we see that and know that, it's amazing how we'll even look past that, won't we? Which shows what a danger it is to be enamored with status and success. Because there's part of us that would still go, yeah, he was bad, but man, look at what he had. Look at what he did. Look at what he was able to accomplish What's interesting to me about Nebuchadnezzar is that he actually saw God work. On multiple occasions, the God of the universe gets the attention of Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar would start to move, at least intellectually or with some lip service, toward the things of God. But you know what scares me? Many of us do the same thing. God will get our attention, right? Maybe he'll prick our conscience, or we'll sense something or we we see him move all of a sudden we're drawn to the things of God and then like Nebuchadnezzar pride kicks in or the allure of cultural achievement or power or status or wealth or success and then like Nebuchadnezzar we turn our backs on God to keep pursuing more of us more of me listen culture will always fuel your cravings You need to know this morning that the gospel offers an alternative. There is contentment available. Secondly, culture always encourages this self-centered pride, but the gospel fosters Christ-like humility. You know, in many ways, chapter four is really a biography, if you read it all, of Nebuchadnezzar. It was likely written by him. And a biography is just simply the the telling of the story of your life. But what separates a biography from a testimony is the determination of who gets the credit. If it's you getting the credit, then it's a biography. And that's what our culture knows, right? That's what our culture uh, promotes. This is what I did. This is what I overcame. This is how I conquered. This is how awesome I am. You can be like me. Follow me on social media too, by the way. That's a biography. A testimony is, this is what 
God has done for me. This is what God has done in me. This is what God has done through me. In reality, this is what God has done in spite of me. And so here we see clearly this collision between a biography and a testimony, between pride and humility. Up until this point, Nebuchadnezzar has a biography. In contrast, Daniel and his friends have a testimony. And the point is this. When you look at your life and tell your story, you're going to have to decide who's going to get the credit. And that's a decision we've got to make. See, Nebuchadnezzar has decided he will get the credit. He's the king of the great empire, and he knows it. His heart swells with pride. Look back at verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. Probably the understatement of the century, right? When you rule empires and you live in a city surrounded by high walls with gardens and palaces and soldiers and you've got a harem and you have so much extra gold that you make a 90-foot version of you, right? You could say you're living at ease. Life's going pretty well. You're certainly prospering. And then in verse 30, he tells us how he thinks he got there. And the king said, is this not great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. Nebuchadnezzar surveys and says, of all that I have accomplished, all that I have built, all that I have achieved, it's by my power and it's for my glory. Those two words reveal the heart of self-centered pride. By me, And for me, when you survey what you've built with your life, do you relish in the fact that it was your hard work, that it was your intelligence, it was your initiative or your power? That's the foundation of your greatness. It it came from me and it came through me. See, pride gets its pleasure from being independent and self-determining and self-sufficient. Pride loves to think of, of self as the source, the source of great achievement, but also the recipient of great praise. And look, we've got to remember that since Adam's first sin, right, we've all been born with this disposition. Because really, at the heart of the first sin was pride, wasn't it? Adam and Eve chose to abandon their, their childlike dependence on God in favor of godlike dependence on themselves. And while we'd be quick to see that in their story, we've got to also look and say, hey, that's my story. This is our story uh, collectively. Our hearts naturally turn inward. Pride overshadows all that we say and do. And this is bad news, church, because over and over again throughout the scriptures, God says what? I hate pride. Over and over again, we're reminded, but also here's some good news this morning, because as much as God hates pride, God God also loves proud sinners that would turn to him. 
He, he, he hates pride, but he loves his children, and that's why he sent his one and only son, Jesus, into the world to save us from the power and the penalty of pride. Pride is in you, and I know that because it's in me too. But can you see it? Are you aware? And can you today, by God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, say, I am pursuing the posture of God's sufficiency, not enjoying self-sufficiency. And I'm living my life for God exaltation, not the enjoyment of self-exaltation. Because of grace, God takes Nebuchadnezzar through the valley of humiliation. He relegates Nebuchadnezzar to seven years living as a beast on the ground. And I'll tell you, that's where pride will land you. And it was a long way down from the top of the palace to being a beast in the field, wasn't it? The reason God made Nebuchadnezzar act like an ox that eats grass with hair as long as eagles at wings and nails like bird's claws was to show him the bestiality of pride. Because the reality is when all of us live apart from God, we start to all act like beasts. But don't forget that we were made not as beasts, but as image bearers. But when man tries to become like God, God will make that man become like an animal. And that's because God loves us. He loves us enough to bend our stiff-necked pride and lovingly push our face to the ground because that's where the streams of living water flow. In humility, I love how C.S. Lewis frames out putting aside pride and pursuing humility. He says, and he, meaning God and you, are two things of such a kind that if you really get into any kind of touch with him, you will, in fact, be humble, delightedly humble, feeling the infinite relief of having for once got rid of all the silly nonsense about your own dignity, which has made you restless and unhappy all of your life. Faith family, I would plead with you this morning, if you have never been there, go to the valley of humiliation. Let yourself feel the sheer insanity of self-centered pride. And trust the good news of the gospel is that Jesus came into the world to convert people from dependence on self to dependence on God. He died to pay the penalty for our pride and show us the way of humility so that then we could send all of our boasting toward God and not toward ourselves. God has provided a pathway for us. And the pathway is through humility. From the kingdom of self to the kingdom of eternal life. Did you catch it in our chapter? It was actually repeated four times over. Till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. That's what Daniel chapter 4 is all about. That's what the Bible is all about. The pathway from pride to humility always goes through the cross. Well, the third thing I want you to see this morning is that culture always drives us to isolation, but the Bible calls us to biblical confrontation. A powerful part of this story that I wish that we could take a whole morning to explore was Daniel's courage in his biblical confrontation of this all-powerful king. 
He had to be the one to tell the king, the very king that could take his life, hey, that dream's about you. You're the, you're the tree that's about to be cut down and you're about to have a very rough seven years. Now, I don't know when it will be and I don't know quite the circumstances, but if you're a Christ follower, there will be a time that he calls you to stand up to someone else who's making the wrong decisions for the purpose of helping them back on God's path. Just as I know there will be times that God allows someone to do that for you. See, the reality is this. We all have blind spots. And they're called blind spots because they're hard to see. And this is why we need one another in Christian community And because we live in community, we don't live in isolation. That means we have to get good at biblical confrontation. In the New Testament, we see Paul even encouraging us in this in Galatians 6.1, where he says, brothers, if any is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. But keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted So practically, well, how do we do this then? If we're called to do this for our brothers and sisters here in this faith family, how? First of all, we confront for restoration. The ultimate goal of any biblical confrontation is restoration. We lovingly want to help someone get back on the right path. Listen, we never confront because we are right. But we always confront because we want people to be right with God. And that's a big difference. And then secondly, we confront with caution. What was Paul's warning to us? Those who are godly should do this, but be careful because it's so much easier to see the speck in someone else's eye, right? Than it is to see the log that's protruding out of our own. He says, be careful and do this with love and with gentleness Confront with caution. Why? Because then we become vulnerable to pride. Likely the very thing we're pointing out in somebody else. So he says, confront for restoration, confront with caution. And that's exactly what Daniel does. Did you catch how he said it? Oh, king, I wish this did not apply to you. In fact, I wish this was for your enemies. But because I love you, I'm going to be willing to say hard things. I'm going to be willing to tell you the truth. And and so here's here's what it means, king. And I humbly tell you, please accept my advice. Stop sinning. Turn your heart to God. Don't live for yourself. Live for him. Don't do what's wrong. Do what's right. And maybe, just maybe, you'll continue to prosper. Now, we don't want to be overly confrontational. We certainly don't want to be arrogant or harsh. But to live in gospel community requires biblical confrontation. And listen, sometimes you're going to deliver a message, and sometimes they're going to turn, and other times they're not. And I want you to hear clearly, you're never responsible for the person's response. You're simply responsible to be obedient what God has called you to do. Confront the right way with the right heart posture and trust God with the results.
You know, many people through the years have chased after what Nebuchadnezzar was after. The success, the status, the fame, the wealth, the popularity. One of those men, which is a fascinating story, was a man by the name of P.T. Barnum. His life and story was told in the movie, The Greatest Showman. And in that movie, P.T. Barnum, who was played by Hugh Jackman, lives to make a name for himself. He longed to have the adulation of uh, the crowd and the success that the crowds would bring to his life. And he was able to do that with the circus that he created. But it really wasn't enough for him. He didn't want to oppress common people. He wanted to impress the elites of his time. He wanted to become like one of them, to show them that he belonged, that he fit. And so he found an act in Europe, a singer by the name of Jenny Lind, who was nicknamed the Swedish Nightingale, and he brought her to New York. And in the very moment He's feeling the recognition and the admiration and the validation that he so desperately desires. He he can feel it, but yet there's this prophetic voice telling him it will never be enough. Take a look. Did you see him backstage? Barnum's getting what he thought he wanted, but over him he hears the shine of a thousand spotlights will never be enough. Towers of gold are still too little. These hands could hold the world, but it will never be enough. 
Jesus said that too. He said, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world, yet lose his very soul? Listen, faith family, to live counterculturally in this world is to sing another song. And Nebuchadnezzar was able to sing it after God humbled him. Let's finish the chapter, starting in verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? And at the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and my splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. That should be the song over our lives as well. The only one worthy of worship and honor, the only person who does justice is God and God alone who rules and reigns over all. He is the only one worthy of singing about. Watch out for the person who talks about the sovereignty of God but has no song in his or her heart. The biblical opposite of pride is not pondering about the sovereignty of God, but it's praising the sovereignty of God. It's delighting in it. It's trusting in it. It's resting in it. It's living for it. Now, with every fiber of our being... We bless and we praise and we honor and we live for the Most High who lives and rules and reigns forever. He, church, is the only one worthy of worship. When you bow the knee of submission to his lordship, your residence changes from the kingdom of self to the kingdom of God. And I can assure you, your life will never be the same.